And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the challenges of connecting through real relationships with each other. About these relationships that begin to be formed in things like a connection group, in like having coffee in the lobby. But how do we, how do we form these things? Because it's not just as easy as just making a nice little slogan like, oh, we connect to God, each other, and our world through real relationships, and then it magically happens. It takes work, it takes intention, and there's things that make it difficult. But we believe in relationships at Parkway. It's one of our, one of our six values, is that relationships matter. And so we aspire to live in community as a church, as a way of better expressing God, Jesus' love and care to each other. We can do that better when we're connected in relationship. And we believe relationships matter because that we were created for relationship. The deepest human need is to be known for who we truly are and loved anyways. That's the deepest human need, is to be known for who we truly are and loved anyways. We're not meant to go through life alone. And that's why Jesus says that the two most important things we can do is to love God and love other people. We often get the idea that, that our that connecting to God is the most important thing. That, that, you know, being a follower of Jesus is about a spiritual life between us and God. And that if we, if we just have a good spiritual life between us and God, then, then we're doing it. But Jesus says, no, it's not just about having a spiritual life between you and God. If that relationship between you and God is okay, you also need to remember that the relationship between you and other people needs to be okay too. You need to be in relationship with other people. It's not just enough to love God. You have to love others as well. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I could understand all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others— I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. You can't love God and not love other people. In the book of 1 John, it says, you know, that if you say you have love for God but you don't love others, you're a liar. You know, loving God and not loving people is like trying to make a peanut butter and jam sandwich without the jam, right? Like you have like half the ingredients. It's, you have a peanut butter sandwich, which is not the same thing as a peanut butter and jam sandwich. It's all dry and, you know, bland in your mouth. If you love a peanut butter sandwich, that analogy doesn't work. It's fine. Um, Stick with me there. Um, But our relationships with each other are so important. And Jesus thinks that they matter so much that he said that our relationships with each other would be the distinctive mark of a Jesus-following community. That how we treated each other and how we loved each other would be the defining characteristic of a Jesus-following community. In John 15, 35, he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, historians and scholars tell us that in the first 400 years of Christianity, that the church grew rapidly, especially between 200 AD and 400 AD. And they tell us that the church grew so rapidly because of a bunch of factors. But amongst those factors was that the church was known for their care for widows and orphans and the poor. That they they took care of the people in their community so well, and not only in their church community, but in their actual, just in their towns and villages. They took care of everyone so well. Their relationships were so loving and, and caring that people looked at these Christians, these early Christians, and said, 
I want to be a part of that community. It looks awesome to be a Christian because, like, you know, like you get free health care. Like, basically, was what they're like. That's awesome. Um, you know, th- th- it's great to be a part of the community where they care for one another and they love for one another. And so people were falling all over themselves to sign up to become a Christian because the distinctive mark of the early Christian communities was that they loved people, that they would care for people no matter who you were or what you were dealing with. And so the way that we, as followers of Jesus, connect with each other often says more to people outside of the church about the power of God's love than our words ever can. They look at how we treat each other and they say, if it's loving and beautiful, they go, wow, there's really something there to those those Christians, to those churches. But if we're known for division and fighting and we don't really seem to get along, then they say, oh, there's, there's really, it's just hypocrisy. That's why the last prayer that Jesus prayed before he was arrested and led to his death was this. He, he prayed for the unity of everyone who would follow him. In John 17, 20, he says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. It's a beautiful prayer. And one that we want Parkway to be a model of, a community of people united in love for God and each other, and sharing that love with the world. But the truth is that the practical everyday reality of living out these relationships, in in, in living out human relationships, unity is hard, really hard. I mean, unity is, is hard not because I'm difficult to get along with, but because other people are hard to get along with. I mean, I have I have lots of people I love, family, friends, people in this room. But If we're honest, there are people that it's difficult for us to love, too. Now, perhaps it's because of things that they've said or done. Perhaps they're just a little bit different than us. We can't quite connect. Perhaps we don't quite agree with something that they think that we think is rather important. I mean, in general, it's easiest to love the people who are like us. The more similar they are, the, the more they think look, act, and talk like us, the easier it is to get along with people. And in general, if we're honest, Parkway is a relatively monocultural church because Greeley is a relatively monocultural community. But even within the monoculture of our, of our church, there's a wide range, wide diversity of opinions, um, beliefs, and views about all sorts of topics. So for example, I'll just give you a couple examples of, of, of areas where there may be some diversity of opinion in the room. Um, based on what I see from many of you on Facebook and from the conversations I have, I would guess the majority of people in this room voted conservative in the last election. I would, that would be my guess. But there, I, I know for a fact there are also people in the room who voted for the Liberals and the NDP. I don't know if anybody voted for the Green Party, but if you did, good for you. Um, I've had people in this room tell me that Donald Trump is God's appointed president to be the leader of the free world. 
and he should be supported. I've had other people who have said to me, I do not understand how a Christian, a true Jesus follower, can be a supporter of Donald Trump. They are just confused by that. There are people in this room who have served or currently do serve in the military. There are other people in this room that I know are pacifists. And they believe that, and so, well, the people who serve in the military or, 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 or believe in just war theory would say, well, God ordains war in certain circumstances. The pacifists would say, Jesus teaches a, an ethic of nonviolence and that we should never go to war. There are people in this room who believe that God created the world in a literal six days. There are people in this room who believe that God created the world over, uh, over a longer period of time, millions and billions of years. They believe that God created it, but that it took a much longer time, and that, that the six days of, in Genesis are symbolic in a way. There, in this room, there's a variety of opinions about theological topics, like the rapture, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the inerrancy of Scripture. Get talking about these things, and people will have different ideas about what they mean. And that's not even getting onto social topics, like issue, things like gender identity, gay marriage, the legalization of marijuana, the role of the government, consumption of alcohol, racial and gender inequality. And if you're starting to feel some anxiety and some tension just as I'm listing these topics, that's the point. And if you go, well, no, I know what the right answer is to all those things. That's also the point. So it's easy to have unity and love for everyone up until the point that we discover the thing at which we disagree. Say, so, oh, yeah. Up to the point where I can imagine that you're exactly like me, it's really easy to like you until I discover the point where you're not exactly like me. And then I go, ooh, that's harder. What do I do about that? But the real tension then is in how do we live in unity and still embrace that diversity? How do we accept that there's people with all these different opinions and ideas and thoughts, and that yet we're still one body, one church? This is what Jesus prayed for, and this is what we as a church long for. Pastor Michael said this two weeks ago. He said, I long for the day when this church is known as a safe place for every person, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe. No matter what your life is like, no matter your abilities or disability, no matter what your abilities or disabilities are, you are welcome here at Parkway Church to experience God's love. Our dream for Parkway is not that we become less diverse, but more diverse. We want to be a place where all kinds of people can belong and contribute. But how can we be that kind of church? How can we be a church that embraces diversity while still remaining unified? Now, historically, we're going to look at how churches have handled this historically. Historically, it's been a struggle for the church to embrace diversity and unity at the same time. And they've done this, the most common way the church has done this is they've created what Paul Hebert calls bounded groups. Bounded groups focus on who is in or out. And you, you, set the, you set the boundary, and you say, all right, unity is everybody who's inside the circle. And to create unity, we get everybody who's outside the circle to come inside the circle. And bounded groups give a clear line that indicates who's in and who's out. Now, bounded groups can be really, really helpful. For example, 
Um, I'll give you an example of a bounded group. A, a gym membership is a bounded group. So out of all these little dots on the screen all, representing all these different people, the people inside the circle are the people who have a gym membership. If you go to Movadi and you don't have a gym mem membership at Movadi, you don't have a gym membership. You aren't a member of the gym. Even if you work out at Movadi and you don't have a membership, you're not a member. The way you become a member of Movadi is you buy a membership. That's how you become a member. That's how you move from outside the circle to inside the circle. Another example of a bounded group is citizenship. In order to become a Canadian, or in order to be a Canadian citizen, you have to have a piece of paper that says you're a Canadian citizen. Everybody who doesn't have the piece of paper that says you're a Canadian citizen is outside the circle. Everybody who has the paper is inside the circle. You can live in Canada and not be a Canadian citizen. And you can be outside the circle because you don't have the piece of paper that says you're a Canadian citizen. You can be, and Canadian citizens inside the circle are made up of an incredibly diverse group of people. Incredible, that have almost, that, you know, many of them have almost nothing in common except for the fact that they have a piece of paper that says that they're a Canadian citizen. That's a bounded group. It's a very clear line about whether you're in or you're out. You're either a Canadian citizen or you're not. Very helpful when it comes to things like gym memberships and citizenship. But sometimes it can be extremely destructive too, particularly when we look at church history to see how this is played out. So for the first 400 years after Jesus uh, was resurrected and ascended, the church really, there was not one sort of like head of the church. There was not one church. There was different church, Christian, community, Christian churches within different communities all across uh, the Roman Empire and beyond. And even within those smaller communities, there was some um, struggles with diversity, which we'll talk, and unity, which we'll talk about a little bit later when we talk about the church in Corinth. But for 400 years, there was just Christians. Then the emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and he decided that it would be helpful if the Roman Empire became Christian. So he basically made a decree that the Roman Empire was now Christian. All the other temples and stuff would now become Christian temples, all that. They would only worship one god. So he created a bounded group, and the following empires, emperors followed that, and they said, basically, if you're going to be a Roman citizen, be a part of the Roman Empire, you need to be a Christian. And here's where they created the boundary. They said, if you make sacrifices to other gods besides the Christian god, we'll kill you. You're in or you're out. You can be anything you want to be, but if you're not a Christian, we kill you. And so most people were like, we're a Christian. Excellent. That's good. We're going to do that. And so they were all inside the circle. Now, and there was one church, the Roman Catholic Church. Over the next few centuries, there began to be some tension arising between the Latin church in the West and the Greek church in the East. Some of the things that they disagreed about were important, like, the, um, like what was the origin of the Holy Spirit? Where did it come from? Where does, where, where does it come from? Other things were less important, like as whether or not the communion bread should have yeast in it or not. This was a big issue of debate, whether it should, the communion bread should have yeast or not. Should it be leavened or unleavened bread? 
Eventually, they became unable to decide about the yeast issue, and so they split up in, a th in the year 1054 AD, and you had the Roman Catholic Church, which didn't have yeast, and you had the Greek Orthodox Church, which is, uh, the, so the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, which did have yeast in their bread. And so if you wanted yeast, you went to the Eastern Orthodox Church. If you didn't want yeast in your bread, you went to the Roman Catholic Church. It was a big deal. But now you have, they set their mark, they set their boundary, and you were either in or out of the circle. Then, um, you fast forward about another 500 years, and we get to a guy named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther had some issues with the Catholic Church. He had 95 issues, to be precise. He nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Church, and uh, it spread around kind of quickly and became a thing. The Catholic Church said, well, we can't have you disagreeing with 95 things about our church and let you still be a part of our church. So they kicked him out, and they excommunicated him. So Martin Luther was like, well, I can't be a part of the Catholic Church, so I'm going to start my own thing. And so he started what was called the Protestant movement. So if you have heard about Catholic and Protestant churches, the Protestant churches were started, came from Martin Luther separating from the Catholic Church um, and starting a protest movement. That's why they're called Protestants. Now, Martin Luther, by rejecting the Catholic Church, starting the Protestant movement, said, we don't need the Pope anymore. We don't have, need a higher authority. You can just read the scripture and determine what's true um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what they quickly found was that within the Protestant movement, there was no final arbiter, no Pope to say, this is right, this is wrong. Um, everybody's opinions became very diverse very quickly, and there was no way to decide who was right and who was wrong. So um, it began to subdivide very, very quickly. So Protestant movement quickly divided down into to smaller groups. So you had the, the Lutherans, which followed Luther's way. And then you had the Calvinists, which followed Calvin. And then you had the Anabaptists, which rejected both of those groups. Um, and they disagreed about some, a bunch of things. They disagreed about what the nature of communion was. Was the presence of Jesus really in the bread, or was it just symbolic? They disagreed about when people should be baptized. Should they be baptized as infants or as adults? This, this, these were really, really big deals um, that in order to prove that they were right, they would fight each other about it. So the Lutherans would try and kill the, the Calvinists. The Calvinists would try and kill the Lutherans. Both the Lutherans and the Calvinists tried to kill the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists ran away because they were pacifists. Then after that, um, these groups began to disagree within themselves about exactly what was the right way to follow Jesus. And so they kept splitting off into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller groups. Um, and the result is that by the year 2001, the World Christian Encyclopedia found that there were nearly 34,000 different denominations across the world. So much for may they be one as we are one, as Jesus prayed. The problem with creating unity through bounded groups is that almost all of our focus becomes on the boundary and protecting the boundary. We all, we're all little sheriffs who have to, like, you know, make sure that everybody stays in line. And we spend a lot of time working to make sure that everyone's following the rules, believing the right thing, looking or acting just like we do. And if they don't, we push them away. Martin Luther King... Martin Luther King says that Sunday morning said, said, um, Martin Luther King Jr. said that Sunday morning was the most segregated hour in America. 
Because our, when our identity of our group is tied up in our boundaries, there's no wiggle room. So every time we disagree with the boundaries that we should set for the group, can you believe this and be a part of the group? No, no, you can't. All right, then they're out. There's no wiggle room. We're forced to start a new group. And we say, okay, well, this is the boundaries of the group I'm a part of, but I actually think the boundaries should be over here. Well, the only thing I can do is I, I need to start another group with this set of boundaries over here. And this leads to the sort of fighting that we have seen throughout church history. And sometimes, let's be honest, even with our own, within our own church. Anyone who's been at Parkway for a real length of time can tell you about the drama and the fights and the church splits that have occurred within our congregation over the over 100 years of existence that, that Parkway's been here. And people leave churches all the time, including Parkway, because they disagree with something the pastor said or some theological doctrine that we hold or some practice that we have or something we do or we say, and they go to a church that better suits their boundaries or they start a new church that, that better suits their boundaries. And churches leave denominations and they go non-denominational or they join a different denomination or, or they start a new one. And bounded groups lead us to believe that we are sure that we're right and other people are wrong because we have the boundaries. We, it's really, really clear. But that fighting and division that happens through really hard boundaries is a problem. And it's not a new problem. As I mentioned earlier, even the very earliest churches dealt with this problem. And so Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. And the reason he writes a letter to the church in Corinth is because they are divided over boundaries. In fact, they're really sort of subdivided into four groups. In 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says that the church is divided into four groups. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. People are setting their boundaries. Well, I'm doing it Paul's way. No, I'm doing it Peter's way. No, I'm doing it Apollos' way. Well, I'm doing it Jesus' way, and obviously that's the right way. So different parts of the church had picked different leaders that they were following. There was division uh, over communion. Um, the rich people were bringing extravagant meals to their communion gatherings, and then they were just eating it in front of the people who didn't have any food, and they weren't waiting for them. And, and so there was eco economic divisions. There was debate over what are called spiritual gifts, and which were the best spiritual gifts to have. And if you didn't have certain spiritual gifts, were you really a Christian? Or, 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 what, was, or what was the right way to have spiritual gifts? All these things they were fighting about. And so they're all subdividing into their own bounded groups where they were sure that they were right and others were wrong. And it was destroying the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul makes a plea for people to look past their differences. He encourages them not to see themselves as a limited, bounded group, but as small parts of something much bigger and broader and diverse than their group. To do this, to do this, Paul uses the illustration of a body. And it's a big chunk of text. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to follow along, you can. I'm going to read it to you. I'm reading it out of the message, so it sounds a little bit, it just flows smoothly. But this is what, this is, instead of a bounded group, this is the metaphor that Paul gives. And I think it's helpful for us. He says, you can easily see, you can easily enough see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own body. 
Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all say goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he, Jesus, has the final say in everything. Each of us is now a part of his resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at one fountain, his spirit, where we all come to drink. The old labels we once used to identify ourselves, labels like Jew or Greek, slave, free, are no longer useful. We need something larger, more comprehensive. So he's saying, enough with this bounded thinking. Which group you're in? Just get rid of that. We need something bigger. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If foot said, I'm not elegant like hand embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body, would that make it so? If ear said, I'm not beautiful like the eye, limpid and expressive, I don't deserve a place on the head. Would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. No matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. Can you imagine eye telling hand, get lost, I don't need you? Or head telling foot, you're fired, your job's been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic, and therefore more necessary. You can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach. When it's a part of your own body you are concerned with, it makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher. If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? True that. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't see. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. You are Christ's body. That's who you are. You must never forget this. Only as you accept your part of, the bot of that body does your part mean anything. What Paul's saying here is that our groups, our divisions, our, the people like us, the people who think like us, we only have importance because we're part of the bigger thing that's different and diverse and not like us at all. And that's good. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for us to all be the same. He's not describing a bounded group. He's describing 
a diverse community in which all sorts of different people with unique styles and ideas and expressions can coexist. But, but what, what, hold, what holds us all together in that diversity? Well, it's Jesus is what holds us together. Not the rules of the boundary, but Jesus at the center that draws us in. Like, Jesus works as sort of like the gravitational force that we all, we all revolve around. There's not a clear line. It's are you moving towards Jesus instead of away from him? Are you within the gravitational pull of Jesus? If so, then you could be really, really far away. You could be a dot that's really far from the center, but it draw, Jesus is drawing you closer. You belong. And so if we go back and we look at all the disagreements through church history, you know what they weren't about? They weren't about Jesus, really. They were about how to take communion, the right way to baptize people, um, church structure, who should be in charge of leadership, how do you understand the Bible, all these things. They weren't actually about Jesus. Martin Luther and Calvin and the Roman Catholics all loved Jesus. They just disagreed about how to take communion and a bunch of other things. But they all loved Jesus. The list of disagreements with our own church, political views, differing interpretations of Scripture, debates over how to apply Scripture to modern life, all sorts of things. What are they about? Things, ideas, opinions. They're not about Jesus. And what Paul is saying in his letter to the Corinthians is that what we have in common, Jesus, is more than enough to overcome whatever differences may seek to divide us. If we put Jesus at the center, Jesus' body is big enough to hold all sorts of political opinions. Jesus' body is big enough to hold all sorts of biblical interpretations. Jesus' body is big enough to hold all sorts of different ways that people express their worship. Jesus' body is big enough to hold all sorts of different theological opinions. Jesus' body is big enough to hold all sorts of personalities, races, genders, cultures. Jesus' body is very big. How big? It's big. Jesus' body is big enough to hold Catholics from Rome. Coptic Christians from Egypt, underground Christians from China, Baptists from Texas, Anglicans from Europe, and Pentecostals from Ottawa. And when we get so, ar so focused on arguing about the boundaries of our faith, we miss out on the gifts that are available to us from the diversity of the body of Christ. Pastor Rich Vildas says, as Christians, when we only stay within our tribe, tradition, stream, we miss out on the nourishment that is offered to us by the global, historic body of Christ. We end up living like a child who only wants chicken nuggets when a feast is before him. To use Pauline language, the evangelical church cannot say to the Orthodox church, I have no need of you. Presbyterians cannot say to Pentecostals, I have no need of you. The American church dare not say to the church in the global south, I don't need you. To bear witness to Jesus in a world marked by sin, death, and demonic powers, we need the gifts and charismas of the entire body. Each of our traditions bring about great strength, but each tradition alone leaves us with many blind spots and underdeveloped formation. 
So instead of drawing lines and cutting ourselves off from each other, we need to learn to sit down and listen and love and learn from one another. But that's hard. We've been talking to each other for thousands of years as a church. And it's really kind of hard, and if we're not really listening, we can just kind of talk over each other or shout over each other or we're just so busy defending our boundaries that we don't actually hear the other perspective. So how does Jesus say, how does Jesus invite us to be united? Well, it's the table. He invites us to a meal. Because meals, shared meals are spaces where you sit down together and you're all equal at the table. Meals are places where conversations are had and and people share about themselves and their day and their opinions and their thoughts. And we listen to one another and we share food and we all belong together at the table. The table unites us in a way that a meeting or a debate never does. And when we think back to Jesus' Last Supper, where he prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one, and he invites his disciples to keep doing this practice of breaking the bread and sharing the cup, and he says, do this wherever, forever in remembrance of me. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whenever it is, break this bread, drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Be united as followers of Jesus around this table. Think about who was at that table. There was the disciples, and Judas was there too. Jesus at the table shares the meal with Judas, the person who would betray him. How big is the table? That big. That the person who Jesus knew would betray him was invited to take part. Jesus says, you can be a part of this supper too. You can be a part of this meal. And so, Meals together are ways to rediscover our shared humanity. The Lord's Supper is a way to discover what we have in common with one another. That we are all brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the King. That we all belong to one body. 1 Corinthians 10, 15 says, Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. The greatest symbol of unity in the church is our love for one another. And we learn to love one another by sharing the meal together. It's the starting point where we eat and share the meal together. And that leads to conversation. That leads uh, leads us to listening, to learning, and to loving. It's not about creating boundaries to keep people out. But the table is a place to invite people in. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, is we're going to take communion together. I'm going to invite the team to come and do that. I'm, we're going to play a song with a video. Um, it's, a, it's a popular song. I'm sure you've heard it. Um, it's called One by You Two. And it describes the difficulties that relationships, that come with relationships, but how there's something bigger than the things that pull us apart. There's one love, there's one blood that unites us together and that we have the opportunity not to fight one another, but to carry each other. And so I want you to reflect on that. We're going to serve communion and then I'm going to come up and we're going to pray together. So let's play the song and let's serve communion together this morning.